Hello and welcome to this week's Market Thinkers discussion. I'm Jamie Nemsis and I'm joined by my business partner, Drew Meredith. And this week, our guest is Donald Huber from Franklin Templeton, joining us from New York. G'day, Don. G'day, Drew. G'day. <laughs> Thank you for having me join you. Yeah, no problem. Every week, we bring these sessions, uh, insights from leaders, thinkers, uh, investment experts from around the world, investors and influencers that help us build portfolios. Um, and, and essentially, it, we're trying to show you, the listener, the coalface that Drew and I have access to, or Drew, Drew I and our team have access to. First, a little bit about Waddle Partners for the new listeners. Waddle Partners is a firm that was originally founded in 1973 by Austin Donnelly. Austin Donnelly being very much the uh, first uh, fee-for-service independent uh, advisor in Australia, in, in our view, he held dealer's license number one and was very, really an advocate for investor rights uh, amongst his time. He wrote 50 books uh, and, and also uh, helped found the Australian Investors Association. So Waddle Partners still operates very much today under Drew and I's control. We are a fee-for-service independent firm and we build tailored portfolios for individuals and trusts and, and families. Um, and we, we very much pride ourselves in, in portfolio building. So first, um, this session, we're very happy to have Don on the line and we thank him very much for his time. Uh, Don is the head of the Global Growth Fund. A Global Growth Fund uh, plays a key role in our portfolios at the moment. This session is titled Unearthing the Next Amazon. And if Don can do that, we're all going to be very, very rich. Um, no pressure, Don. Uh, but whilst that's uh, pretty much impossible, we, uh, we like Franklin Templeton's growth approach. In, in this next hour, like the last uh, like seven or eight, what we're going to do is Drew's going to talk about why the fund is in, in our portfolio, how do we find it, how does it combine with the other global funds, and really what is the role of it. And then we'll go to Don and ask him 10 quick fire questions uh, just to get the mood a little bit upbeat. And then we'll go into Q&A starting, starting on the fund and you know how many holdings and what does it look like and performance, which has been phenomenal. And then we'll end up talking about individual stocks. As we've always said, um, and they've dropped off a little bit lately, is feel free to ask any questions you like throughout the next hour at any level. You know, don't be scared about asking the silly question. I mean, they're typically the best. So, um, Drew, do you want to just uh, talk a little bit about the fund and where it fits within our portfolio? Yeah, thanks, thanks Jamie. Jamie. I think, I think the, the best, best place, place to start, start, am I getting am a bit getting of echo there? there? Is that just me? That's better. Yeah, I think the best place to start is understand what Jamie was talking about, which was how we see global equities. Um, it's clear, you know, there's very there's a lot of mega cap winners out there that everyone knows, the Amazons and the Microsofts, but there's also a lot of smaller, you know, smaller can still be $50 billion companies that are fast, you know, growing faster and exciting or even fast growing sectors. Uh, and we think investors need to have an exposure to both. You can't just rely on the same companies to keep delivering returns like uh, Microsoft, Apple, and all these these companies. However, I think it takes a little bit more, uh, a different understanding, a more unique focus to identify those companies, something that Don and his team have kind of specialized in since I think it's 2008, or the, the fund anyway. Uh, and why, obviously there's a few options in the sector. The, there's kind of four reasons why we have picked Franklin and the and the global growth strategy to fit the the non mega cap space and the first one's a track record, whilst performance has been exceptional, it's more the quality of companies uh, that that the team have been able to find over the last 10, 12 years and the and the amount that those companies have grown, not necessarily just the benchmark, our performance of the benchmark. Uh, I think part of that comes into Franklin's edge, which Don will probably discuss, and that's understanding the underlying economic exposures of the companies. So it's all well and good to buy Apple, but how much of that income is coming from uh, China or Europe or the US and how diversified are they compared to their, the other companies in your portfolio? Uh, the other part clearly with all those points is the diversification. So 
uh, we'll discuss why the fund doesn't hold things like Apple and Amazon, and that's why it has great diversification benefits. And as we discussed last week, the, the team have a pretty clear focus on finding growing companies that, that have real earnings growth and sales growth, rather than always looking at historical kind of valuations, which we've, we've stressed over the last few weeks. So I think I'll, I was about to pass back to Jamie for his quick I wonder if I was the echo, was everyone, so in um, true form of technology, I opened my door and uh, hopefully that's better. <laughs> All right, Don, we're going to do uh, 10 quick fire questions. Um, we're after one, two or three word answers saying that most presenters give us a minute and a half on each one. So let's see how you go. <laughs> Anything's possible. So first question, uh, what is the best stock you've personally owned? Mercado Libre. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. What is yep. the biggest investment regret you've made? Owning a commodity trading company years ago. <laughs> what is the one red flag for any investment? Weak corporate governance. What is the most important ratio you use? Organic growth. Pineapple on pizza? Yes, with pork. Nice gone by. What is the best piece of business advice you've received? Focus on the long term. Best investment for Armageddon, USD, Bitcoin, government bonds, or gold? Gold. First place you're going to visit post-COVID? Australia. Is that for work or play? <laughs> for work. To see us. See yes, us. absolutely. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, well, there'll be a bit of play in that too then. Uh, yes. You can only hold, say you retired today, Don, and all your capital you've ever earned in your whole life, you've got invested in one stock for your whole retirement. What stock would that be? Mercado Libre. Okay, good. <laughs> Okay, in the next 12 months, not you're a long only fund, meaning that you don't short, but uh, in the next 12 months, you, you need to short one stock. And for the listeners out there, what short means is basically Don needs to pick one stock that's going to go down over the next 12 months out of the NASDAQ 100. NASDAQ 100 being more tech-based than the S&P. I'm going to pick one familiar with everybody on the call, Zoom. That's a good one. But you're going to say Tesla. <laughs> no one's no one's uh, game enough to do that, I don't think. Not anymore. <laughs> Tesla. Yeah. Tesla. Taught them. Taught them. Um, okay, so now we want to talk about your um, maybe just your experience, not 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 the fun, but um, I see a few grey hairs there, Don. So tell us about your your experience <laughs> in markets and. Okay, um, you know I I. I'm originally from Michigan. I moved to New York to work for Chase Manhattan Bank um, in the commercial lending program um, and taught lending money to media companies, or I'm sorry, worked, taught in the program and then worked lending to media companies. The gray hairs are because this was back at the time when cable TV companies were still laying cable in the ground um, to establish their networks. Um, then I, I left and joined another bank which ultimately was folded back into, uh, in, into Chase, uh, but in private banking and kind of midway in my experience there got into investment management for high net worth individuals. And then 12, uh, two, early 2002 came to Franklin Templeton on the, the essentially joining the, the global and, and uh, non-US equity team. Mm. They changed a lot over that time. There's something like over a trillion under management now. We have changed quite a bit. Uh, most recently with the acquisition or combination with Lake Mason, yeah. uh, which, which kind of significantly increased our, our assets. I think, you know, the great thing to me and, and having worked in commercial banking and seen a number of, of and, and participated and experienced a, a number of mergers, like, I think a great thing about Franklin Templeton is that we tend to buy different investment capabilities for those capabilities for those teams and then let the teams do their thing. Yeah. Um, and so with this, you know, with the Leg Mason acquisition, we, we 
acquired some new investment management capabilities. And it really is kind of the, the strength of the firm is the variety of investments that we offer. You got some fantastic uh, managers under that acquisition. Phenomenal. Um, yes. And, and it's, it's a family business, isn't it? I think the CEO is a granddaughter of the original founder. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's it's been in the kind of the Johnson family or, or you know, meaningfully owned by the Johnson family for years. Yes. Yep. Our current CEO took over from her brother. Yeah, okay. And there's a bit of a, is there a family culture within your group or is it, it does that have an influence, do you think, or? I, you know, I think so. I think, um, you know, the sort of the great aspect or one of the great aspects of Franklin Templeton has been, um, you know, as I say, they, they tend to buy investment capabilities and they leave the investment responsibility with the teams. And so that's what that's meant for us is, is that I think we have a very strong culture. We tend to hire people and keep them um, who like being part of a, a, a team that, that gets focused from the organization and focused from investors. Um, so we're growing um, in, in terms of our, our business and assets and products to a certain extent. Um, but I think we have a pretty unique way, we're told a pretty unique way of managing money and, and we attract people who like that, like that approach on the, for analysts who like the autonomy that they have as they search for ideas. Mm. Um, you know, the fact that we're, we're compensated in line with, with our investors' objectives is the more successful we are from a performance standpoint, the better it is for us as, as individuals. And how big is your team in the global growth strategy or, or is it global equities? team? Yep. Our team is, it's 11 people and a little over 8 billion in total in US dollars in assets under management. Yep. And the Australian strategy has got about over 500 million, doesn't it? Under management. In the the fund. And then we also, we manage money for institutions as well. Directly. Yep. So yeah, substantial fund down here. I think maybe pivot towards the fund and, and talk about the universe. I kind of open to saying that you're not mega caps. I don't, do you specifically exclude them or is it, um, uh, and what, what benchmark or what is a universe of investments really? Yeah. You know, the universe for us here in the, in, in the fund is all companies domiciled anywhere in the world um, with the exclusion of Australian companies with a minimum market cap of $2 billion in the US. We don't go much below that. So we consider ourselves to be kind of mid-size and, and, and larger companies. Yeah. We don't, we don't exclude mega caps, but for a variety of reasons, we tend not to be drawn to them, certainly as much as, a, as, as many of the standard benchmarks are. I think that's one of the ways that Drew and I found you. Um, uh, over the last, I don't know, it was 18 months or two years ago, when we looked at the best performers uh, over a five-year period, um, the, you were in the top five, maybe two or three, and we were comparing all the top holdings of the f- top five performers. And, you know, the, the, I won't mention names, but they're all pretty common in Australia. And you look at their top 10 holdings and they're nearly exactly the same same just with slightly different holding weights and then you got to your fund and it was totally different so when you know when tech was really going um you were able to keep up uh which which we thought was really interesting um and how many how many individual shares do you hold at a time don typically somewhere between 20 or 35 and 40 different positions in the portfolio Yep. And what's the average market cap of those? Something like um, 25 to 50. Yeah, the, the weighted average market cap in, and we typically run it for in Australian dollars, uh, 70 billion Australian dollars. And that's as opposed to, you know, the common benchmark, the benchmark that we use where there's a weighted average market cap of about 380 billion. Yeah, and then our our largest company in Australia is what 130 billion. So it's, <laughs> it's you know it's not much. Uh, it'd be yeah, the average holding in there would be within our top ten, uh, easily within our top ten, probably bigger than the Commonwealth Bank. So it's yeah. very very mm-hmm. high quality businesses you're looking for. And one another question we've got there is: Can you hold any cash? Do you take any macro view where you 
take risk off and you hold cash or is it always fully invested? We don't, we're fully invested. And, you know, typically in the fund, we'll hold somewhere two to three to maybe 4% in cash. It's really transactional as flows come in and we're investing or after the sale of a position and, and you know, looking to reinvest. But, you know, our view is that when you're buying a share in our fund, uh, you're, you're investing in global equities. And that's what we're going to deliver. And if, if, if you as advisors or, or investors feel that now's the time to be raising cash, then you do that in your, in your portfolio. But, but we look at it as you're buying, you're investing with us because you're looking for global equity uh, exposure and investments. And that's what we're going to provide. Yeah. And so the universe would be something like maybe, I won't say 30,000, maybe 3,000 companies that you're pulling down to 30. It is. I actually had somebody run that uh, a few weeks ago, and it's somewhere between twenty six and twenty seven hundred companies. Yeah, uh, that, that we can we can identify. And how do you filter? We don't know all of them, but <laughs> <laughs> how do you filter through them? Is you know you kind of uh, I assume you have a you have a quality and an earnings growth focus. How do you how do you get from three thousand back to to thirty, or even to the I assume there's probably a hundred that you'd buy at any time, but that that's yeah. distilled to thirty. Yep, we you know we leave that up to our analysts. So of the, of the eleven of us on the team, uh, all but two of us are, uh, e are either analysts or or have some component of research uh, responsibility. Um, in most cases, they're sector specific, so they're looking at consumer companies or financials or technology companies, and so we really leave it up to them to figure out what where the most attractive opportunities are and to kind of narrow it down. Um, it can be a winding path. And so, you know, an analyst may have a, a spreadsheet with a bunch of, of gross numbers and return numbers uh, for companies uh, that they're kind of tracking or watching and may see a company pop up. Um, an analyst may be thinking about where's their attractive secular growth within my sector. Let's say you were starting from scratch and you're covering consumer, you'd probably go right away to e-commerce. And do we have any, which is a very broad category, do we have any investments in e-commerce? Um, you know, where is the best place? What are the best companies? And, and do they fit our criteria? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like a daunting task, but for a number of companies, they just don't fit the strategy. And, 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 and we all know that, uh, you know, in the auto industry, for example, you you know, we're not going to own a, a auto, we're not going to own Toyota or General Motors, you know, the, the major OEMs. Uh, they're heavily capital intensive. They require a lot of, of, of investment in, in machinery, uh, heavily regulated in terms of the products extreme, that they put out, extremely competitive. So just not an area for us, for our strategy as a growth strategy that we find attractive. That said, there may be opportunities within the auto industry that, that uh, you know, as, as we drill down and think about what's becoming more and more important for the auto industry and things like hybrid electric cars, the growth of those. So companies that supply that industry or, or automation uh, and, you know, yeah, automation, uh, you know, all the steps that lead to active safety, the steps that lead up to autonomous driving, um, increasingly important. And so are there leaders there? So, do you, so your initial, initial ideas come from sort of themes and these secular drivers, or is it from the bottom-up kind of rate, fundamental ratios? It, it can come for, from both um, yeah. or, for, or from either. It may come from, uh, you know, it may come from thinking about, as I say, in the auto industry, where's, where's the most attractive place to invest? Where is there secular growth? And can I find a company there? Yeah. You know, one company we own in the portfolio uh, that's... Uh, called Aptiv, that's a, a big um, company in, in supplying electronics and, and benefits from hybrid and electric cars, the shift to, to hybrid and electric cars, as, as well as the shift to active safety and up to autonomous driving. That came to us because we had looked at another company, uh, you know, a chip company that was uh, important uh, for, it, you know, kind of had a key market in, in some of the vision systems on cars. But as we looked at that, we thought we liked the growth drivers, but we're not sure about this company. Uh, it was kind mm -hmm. of a one product company and we weren't so sure about that. So were there other companies in the area that we could be looking at? 
the idea initially could have come from the analyst seeing the company at a conference or, or reading some research as she was just doing general uh, research on her sector. And then how do you put that together? If you have a, the analyst come with a hundred ideas, um, do you buy the even weights? Do you have someone that works on weightings and exposures? Do you have rules around the portfolio build? Yep. Um, it, well, there are a couple of aspects to this. I mean, one is we, so we wouldn't own a hundred companies. Um, so we'd need to whittle that down um, in, in some ways. Yeah, one of the, one, so one of the ways that we do it and, and do the whittling down is we're, we all talk the same language. We all have the same approach in terms of the characteristics that we're looking for. And we you know, break those down into growth quality and valuation characteristics. And I'm happy to get into those, to those further, but it's really the same characteristics that we look for, whether you're talking about a, a, a bank or an e-commerce company or a tutoring business. Uh, and so we'll compare the companies. We'll, we'll talk to the analysts and say, we're looking at these two companies and they're very similar. Um, you guys come back to us and tell us which of them you think is more attractive. Um, and so we whittle it down first by just, you know, being, being uh, you know, have, having a very strict discipline for the types of companies that we're looking for and, and really looking for the, the best business models, the best opportunities. Uh, the other way that we that we break it down is is as we think about building the portfolio, we're, we're looking to avoid duplication where we can of, of investment companies, and I can get a bit more into that. Um, but I want to answer your other question about how position sizing and and how we think about uh, you know how how much to own a, of a given company in the portfolio. The positions generally range between two and four percent in the portfolio. Uh, you know, at the low end, we want to make sure that each company has an opportunity to contribute. We do a lot of research on these on these companies. It takes months for an analyst to get a name into the portfolio. And so we want to make sure that, that any holding has an opportunity to meaningfully contribute to performance. And at the high end, we just don't want to take too big a bet on a, on a particular company. And partly that's because the, the companies that we own tend to be fairly unique, unique business models. And so there's a, you know, a, a a bit of risk in them, if you will, to the extent that that business model is successful. Um, and so we're not going to double up on that and see us own an 8% position in a given company. That's just it's more risk than we want to take on in the portfolio. Maybe that's a good segue towards growth. I was uh, kind of getting an update on the fund and, you know, your forward PE says 40 times, which everyone, everyone would say, oh, that's, you know, it's a bubble, it's overvalued. What do you look, obviously, if a PE is high and the company's growing, well, the PE should shrink over time. Um, what, are you, what are you looking for in terms of, of growth? Is it sales growth? Is it profit, real profit growth? Is it earnings growth, cash yep. flow? It's kind of, it's, it's a combination of those. I mean, ultimately tying into to valuation, ultimately for most of our companies that we're looking at, it's free cash flow. So companies, you know, the cash that's being generated by a business after they reinvest or ap after capital expenditures. Um, so the cash flow that's available to really to shareholders um, and can be deployed either to make acquisitions and to grow or to pay dividends or, or to return through through share buybacks. Mm. So that's the, the, you know, that's the main thing. Now, free cash flow is it, growth is being driven by revenue growth. That's the reason I, I picked one metric or, or ratio, not technically a ratio, I guess, but organic growth is being key because it, it tells you outside of acquisitions, how much is a company able to grow from year to year? Um, which gives you a great measure of top line growth. Um, and then profitability, how efficiently the company operates will, will ultimately drive how much of that top line growth or revenue growth falls through then to the bottom line and, and to the free cash flow being generated. Yeah, there's a long history of kind of roll up strategies in Australia where you keep buying and buying and buying, but it never actually, you never get the synergies or it never falls, you know, the earnings growth never falls out. Um, and, but looking at free cash flow, is obviously an important way to, to find if they're actually making money. Yes, exactly. And secular growth, that must have a time frame in your mind. It's because we've seen lots of 
growth areas, you know, say a, a, a TikTok or a Zoom that have happened over a really short period of time and stocks have done really well. Um, but will it continue? You know, it's, it, it's hard to know if this Zoom thing will increase and can they get revenue? So when you think about a secular theme, is there a time frame? Is it something that's going to play out for three years or five years or nine years or permanently or... It's a market on yeah. steroids. Yeah. yeah. You know, typically I'd say we we're looking for somewhere between five and 10 years yeah. uh, for a growth driver. And, and, you know, I'll give you an example. We looked years ago at a, at a company that sold, it was a brick and mortar retailer that sold electronic games here in the States. Um, leading market position electronic games, as we know, growing very, very rapidly. Uh, and we thought near term over the next few years, the fundamentals were really strong. Over mm -hmm. the longer term, we didn't understand why you needed to go to a retailer to buy an electronic game when it could be downloaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was a, you know, a great near term opportunity, but 10 years out, we didn't know if they were gonna even exist. Um, and so that's not the kind of, you know, we've got to think longer term than just the next few years and what, what demand looks like. So um, secular growth theme, secular growth, would be cloud, for example. Is that exactly? Yeah, yeah. exactly. The, the the move to uh, on the part of companies, even consumers, uh, with you know, with Microsoft three sixty five, with, with yeah. storing data, uh, you know, having software applications in the cloud rather than um, rather than on premises. Uh, cheaper, less expensive, uh, in in some ways easier to manage. Uh, and so a growing trend and so you know, the fascinating thing about cloud i think uh, for us anyway is it doesn't just affect um the really really big companies where we're a relatively small company and you know we're microsoft 365 we don't have a server anymore all our stuff is stored every month it comes and we pay a check really happily well we don't pay a check anymore they're gone as well right? <laughs> <laughs> we do a direct credit and you know it's really for a small business it's phenomenal drew and i've started a couple other businesses and just the opportunity to start a business get everything in cloud make sure your data is protected make sure you de deploy all these services to your new employees is just phenomenal you know it's a phenomenal benefit would have taken us weeks or months to get it all up and well i don't do it drew does it it, it takes you know <laughs> um a day and all your systems are up and you've got a website and it's just a phenomenal change i think from small business all the way through to big and you don't see that very often where it affects both ends to the same yeah. no it's been it's been a tremendous shift in it and it drives demand for uh for, for server farms or for you know in 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 the companies that are hosting uh you know the all, all holding and hosting the data and the services yeah. uh, software it's it's great for software businesses uh you know, who have traditionally relied on sending, I mean, this gets back to my gray hair, but, but I'm sending you a, a disk that has the software that you pay for um, upfront. And then uh, you install it on your computer and five years from now, they have another version and they hope that you'll buy it again. Um, when you have software that you're buying as a service, it's much more predictable for the software companies. And so it, it becomes a much, steadier more even business model that's not reliant on on you know phenomenal new upgrades that'll get people to shell out more money for for the latest version mm. it's interesting a lot of the large caps big so so when we build a portfolio don we we have two managers which we've had on recently uh one is gqg out of uh, florida and the other one is a local melbourne manager munro and they typically one is long short and one is long only and they typically go large cap right all the fangs or drew and i buy them directly that's kind of yeah. the top and then we go sizes so obviously you're more won't like this but more mid cap even though i saw morningstar called you large cap more mid cap for us and then we have a small cap manager and then we have a tilt over into asia so that's kind of how our core global equity portfolio is, is built um but you know a lot of these sectorial themes you talk about would fit those large caps as well so and i'm you know reading our notes here we kind of want to know why you know something like 
Microsoft or, you know, one of the big caps, is it why there isn't more of them in your portfolio? Because they seem to be really extracting the themes out or is it just too late in the, you know, they, they've, done, they've extracted that theme and there's someone else extracting a new theme. Yeah. You know, it, it, it varies by company. I mean, we own a company called salesforce.com, for example, a very big software company. So we're not afraid of owning and we don't shy away from, from larger companies to the extent that they're very focused, that you've got good visibility, that we think that there's a strong runway out of them. Um, you know, we're often asked why we don't own the fangs and like, you know, it, 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 varies based on company. Um, yeah, for some of them, you know, Facebook, uh, you know, in, in our views, doesn't have the kind of corporate governance that we'd want to see. Yeah. Um, Amazon, uh, you know, clearly has a very strong business in the U.S. and in certain markets where they've got a great first mover advantage in e-commerce. And their Amazon Web, web Services, uh, very, very strong business, increasingly competitive with, with Google, uh, you know, and others, but a very strong business. Uh, you know, we, we used to own Amazon at the time we sold it, they didn't break out that business. And so you just knew that there was a profit engine back there somewhere, but, mm. but no visibility. Um, and then Amazon invests quite a bit in, in um, international markets where they're looking to gain a toehold. And without that first mover advantage, it can be a struggle for them. Um, is, that, is there like an information edge in that? So we, you talked about Mercado Libre, which is, they call it the Latin American Amazon. I'm guessing yep. everyone we've spoken to can't get access to management at Amazon. No one, I don't think anyone can, it's just analyst reports. So I'm guessing Mercado Libre is less covered than Amazon. So you might be able to get better access, less research reports, more opportunity for uh, to, to see something other people don't. Is that kind of the... I, I, I think so. I... I um... I, I know we have better access to Mercado Libre <laughs> management than we, do, than we do to Amazon management. We've probably got the same at Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> we never met Jeff Bezos, for example. Um, so I do, I do think there's a bit of an information edge. We, in some ways, we get better access. We also just have, as I say, better visibility, better, in some ways, better transparency. I mean, you know, Mercado Libre is a pure e-commerce company. Um, and that's really all they do. They're building out to a certain extent some some uh, some fintech capabilities, but it's really an extension of their, their e-commerce business as opposed to an, you know, an Amazon uh, where it's just a more complex business. Um, Google or Alphabet, where they've got this whole incubator platform. I mean, in addition to a, a tremendous business in, in online advertising, they're developing autonomous cars um, and you know without a, a lot of visibility into a, a fair amount of their their portfolio so that's another reason that we like the smaller not only do you get better access to management in 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 many cases but just vi better visibility and they tend to be more pure play businesses than a lot of companies that, that, that grow up and and expand into less related areas I think a big question we always ask is your active share. So I think we defined it last week, which is the difference of your the portfolio that the Franklin Fund owns compared to the index, the index being the MSCI, not the yep. yeah, SP 500. So it's what's what's yep. the active share of the fund? Yeah, the active share is about 96%. 90, so almost every single holding is different to, not necessarily holding, but the portfolio is different to the benchmark. Holdings, yeah, holdings are different. Fair number of our holdings just aren't in the benchmark or aren't, aren't in the index for one reason or another. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, we're not owning the big companies and to the extent that we own, uh, you know, many mid-cap companies, we own them in position sizes that are much different than what they'd be in, a, in the index. Yeah, and new turnover. So how often are you turning over the holding? On average, not necessarily over the last 12 months. It's probably very different over the last 12 months. <laughs> yeah, turnover is measured. Uh, well, the, the turnover measure, is, as it's defined, is somewhere around 30 to 40%. Yeah. Um, now, I, I just point out that, that there are two things that drive turnover. One of those is actually selling a position, eliminating a position in a portfolio and adding a new position. And in that case, it's probably somewhere around 20, 25% because we hold companies for about four years on average. Uh, 
And then the other aspect is just trimming positions as they, as they move up and, and adding to Liger. So that's a component of turnover as well. Uh, for us, that's really driven, as I say, by risk management, just controlling how, how large we'll let a position get. Yeah. And that's really what, what has allowed you to, your performance to be so strong. Um, you know, if we look at five-year numbers, the MSCI has done roughly 10 and a bit percent, uh, where your fund has done 15.8 percent. So, you, you know, you're actively adding after fees five and a half percent or a bit more per annum because you, you are substantially different than the MSCI, even though that it's your benchmark. And that's, you know, our clients will come to us and say, well, you know, we, we want a really low-cost fund and that low-cost fund is an ETF. You know, you can buy the S&P 500 at nine basis points in Australia for a retail investment. Investor, but you know what you end up with is 10 and a quarter not 15 and a half so this is less a question don and more just explaining why we use you within your portfolio or our portfolio there's a question um from, from a listener about is software security a, a secular growth uh, theme or driver so obviously more and more companies are being online we're doing all everything we do is in the cloud, um, is security. And, you know, this is a question that Drew and I ask between ourselves all the time is, you know, the next pandemic is, is going to be electronic versus, you know, viral. That's a great question. And, and, um, and, and, and an interesting one in that, that you haven't heard about major as much about major hacks and, and fishing, you know, the WannaCry, Three, it was three or four years ago, I think. Um, but I do think that it continues to be a, a major risk and a major threat. And it's, you know, it's, I mean, the stories of, of international government it, it led interference into the US elections, I guess, would be a, you know, a topic mm. or, or a, you know, a, a, a factor in that or an example of that. Um, so we, we have over time owned uh, software security firms um, yeah. or, or invested in those. Uh, right now we're invested in one called Zscaler, which is interesting as you talk about the cloud, uh, it's really security software in the cloud. Um, and it's a next generation, um, a, a very rapidly growing technology, kind of the next generation technology, where rather than dialing in, <clears throat> you know, with all, all of us working remotely at some point over the last the, the last half year, um, and for many of us still doing that, rather than dialing in through a, a, a VPN through a, a virtual network and having our data go to the servers and our, our transmissions go to the servers at a company and then to the cloud and then back to the server and then back to us, why not just provide the security in the cloud between the, the data or the software that's in the cloud already, and the the user who's working remotely, um, and so it's a new technology. It's seen as as safer, as as faster, as less expensive, uh, because you don't have all this data going back and forth within a company. It's it's going to and from the cloud, which is where it is to begin with. Um, and so I think that's a, it's a, been a, a strong beneficiary of the, the working from home environment um, that we've had this year and of companies grappling to deal with security um, in this kind of environment. So yes, I think it definitely continues to be a strong secular uh, growth driver. We saw, we saw um, a Zoom invite go to a fund manager in Sydney over the last three months and uh, they clicked on it and essentially that led to a fraud of about $10 million being withdrawn from their custodian in that fund. The fund's now shut down, um, but that was just a simple Zoom invite. So, you know, Zoom has been such a quick moving beast. We really don't know how to treat it. And, you know, even some of the security systems don't know how to treat Zoom invites, but, you know, you're opening your your server and your world up to this link that doesn't make any sense to all of us. So any of us, so, you know, you'll click on it. So it, it's, um, it's really interesting. Unfortunate for those guys, but, you know, you can, you can see where there's going to be a lot more of this, I think, where people look to fraud or they look to um, use technology to defraud people, um, and we're all we're all vulnerable, big and small, again. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it's a theme. 
I think maybe a quick touch on economic exposures, which uh, you, you definitely talk about a lot. You, so getting diversification, not just in where they're listed or what sector they're in, but actually who's buying their product. And then maybe we can take that into a couple of the stocks, starting with Mercado Libre. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I think, well, the concept of, of economic exposure is really just thinking about what's driving the growth for the company and, and uh, what kind of from a macro standpoint could, you know, ultimately as you're building a portfolio, what could go wrong? Um, and so, uh, you know, I'll give you an example of, uh, of this. We, we've owned in the past a company called Umicor, which is a Belgian precious metals company. Um, three lines of business, they make platinum substrate materials that go into catalytic converters, one of the key components for catalytic converters uh, in, in the world and in, in meeting regulatory emission standards. They recycle materials, uh, so mining output, industrial output, and refine it back down into a number of precious metals. Um, and they have uh, cathode materials that they make for rechargeable batteries, historically consumer electronics. Um, but increasingly rechargeable batteries for hybrid electric cars. Uh, you think about where that company is located, it's in Belgium, uh, but it's a global business. The fact that it's in Belgium has nothing to do with, with kind of their economic exposure to uh, any particular region in the world. Uh, you know, from a sector standpoint, they get classified as a materials company or commodities type company. Which is what they make, but ultimately their materials go into. We've, we figure somewhere around 50% of their revenues go into automobiles, either in uh, catalytic converters or, or in car batteries. Uh, and so ultimately, the exposure for for that company is you know, at least half of it is is the automotive industry. But you really only get there if you think about what's no pun intended, what's driving this, this, this business. We like um, puns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so the approach that we take to building a portfolio is, is thinking about what these drivers are, and, and but more importantly, thinking about where and looking to limit places where we have any overlap between those companies. Because if auto industry, you know, if the auto industry really pulls back, if suddenly we're all flying instead of driving or something or, or uh, you know, we see a major pullback in consumer expenditures on automobiles and you own a couple of companies that, that have that as a major force, then, then both of those are going to be, uh, you know, will, will suffer. And so you're kind of doubling up on exposure in an area of the portfolio where really you could be owning a different name that has a completely different driver. So really diversifying to help manage risk. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe we switch over to stocks at the moment. Everyone's okay. called Mercado Libre the the new Amazon, but uh, you know it's easy to call anything a new Amazon or a new Facebook or a new. Um, and it seems <laughs> like Franklin found it long before the market did. Um, so maybe some kind of introduction how you how you found it in the first place and and what it okay. does as well. For okay, um, we've owned yeah we've owned Mercado Libre for ten and a half years now. Um, and we found it as we were really just as we were reading about new concepts in e-commerce and new companies that were growing in e-commerce. E uh, so it was really just kind of a, you know, found it, thought it was interesting at the time. Um, they were just in the process of building out a payments platform. And that sounded interesting to us, much like you know, think of eBay and, and developing PayPal to facilitate payments. Um, Mercado Libre is, is the largest dominant e-commerce storefront in Latin America. Um, unlike Amazon, they don't sell many of their own goods. It really is a storefront for third-party sellers. Um, in Latin America, credit cards are underpenetrated. E-commerce is underpenetrated um, mm. in, in general. And so they needed to find a way or develop a way for people to make payments online. Literally, the way that you made a payment before, uh, for, for most people, before they developed Mercado Pago, uh, was that you'd buy something online from a seller, you'd get information on their, for their bank account, 
you go down to the bank and make a deposit and then you'd send them a notice and say, I paid you, now send me my stuff. Um, and so you could see the opportunity for someone who can invest in, um, you know, who, who can invest in uh, ease of use and facilitating payments. And so that's really what Mercado Libre has done. It was a business plan that was developed at Stanford Business School. Um, and it's, it's had a bit of the virtuous cycle, kind of very similar to Amazon's retail business, e-commerce business in, here in the States is, you know, they had a first, first mover advantage. So they're attracting users, they're attracting uh, sellers. You bring in more users, you attract more sellers, you bring in, you know, you've got more sellers, more, more things that you're selling, SKUs, then you're attracting more users. And in the meantime, you're investing in order to facilitate customer use, to, to make customers more loyal, to have programs for merchants offering goods on your site to make it easier for them to list. Um, and it's really, it's been you know, a, a case where a company has a strong first mover advantage um, and they've been re able to reinvest to continue to drive that. And still today, the e-commerce penetration in, the, in Latin America is lower than it is in, in most of the developed world and, and many parts of the emerging markets as well. What's your been the fund's return on that investment over 10 years? Have you got a compound return on it? We've, we have done well in that return. I, I, I will tell you, I looked at, looked at it um, just the other day relative to the FANGs, because again, we're asked about the FANGs and Mercado Libre over the last five years uh, which is just as far back as I went, outperformed every one of the FANGs over that period. And Amazon tried to enter Latin America too, didn't they? They did, and they still are. Yeah. Um, you know, I think what, what, um, what some people forget about Latin America is that it's not one country. <laughs> um, it is one region, but it's individual countries with, with individual sellers, individual buyers, within each country and regulations that in some cases kind of keep you buying within the country. And so you don't enter Latin America, you enter Mexico, um, you enter Brazil. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, we've long known that Amazon would come in at some point, but, but have looked at it as, as e-commerce penetration in general is so low um, mm -hmm. that there's plenty of room for, for competition. and, and you know, the first place they entered is Mexico, which was easier. They've got a contiguous border with the states, so with the U.S., so it's easier to get um, to get goods in there and, and ship. Um, but it's it's also driven a, a big investment cycle for Mercado Libre, who sees a competitor coming in and, and is looking to invest again in, in ease of use, to offer financing, to to offer faster delivery, um, in order to drive that sticky user base. What about Visa? It's uh, so, so, something that every listener would have would know about, and you've uh, added a position in Visa. Can you talk to us about that that kind of secular growth pattern, or that mainly being more credit? <laughs> sure, sure. I think you know Visa, Visa, and and Mastercard as well have this phenomenal network that. Hmm is extreme. And when you think about the number of transactions that they process, uh, you know, from, from merchant to consumer and the amount of money that gets moved on their networks, the, the number of currencies that they've got to deal with, the, the speed at which all that needs to be done. They've built networks that, that just can't easily be replicated. Um, so the that's the, the first real attractive thing is, is just that they've got a very strong competitive moat. Now, it's not, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not absolute. Uh, people have talked about, you know, looked at blockchain as a technology that could, could potentially, uh, you know, navigate around uh, and circumnavigate the, uh, the card networks. Um, but Visa's investing there. You know, they've got a, a, a big, uh, a big part of their their growth story is they're envisioning it and they're just beginning to crack it is business to business payments rather than consumer to business payments. Um, an area where they're just getting a toehold, a very, very large market and they have blockchain technology behind it. Um, you, know, it you know, if you think of Apple Pay, when Apple Pay first came out, you thought, well, you pay with your phone, you don't 
you know, you, could, you don't need a Visa card. Well, it's tied to the credit cards or, or debit cards. So they haven't been able to do it. The, the, the paper to plastic transition continues to grow. There's still a lot of transactions that are done uh, with, with cash. They're tied to a certain extent to e-commerce. Um, and because you don't pay with cash in, in e-commerce, I guess, unless you're Mercado Libre um, in, in the olden days. Um, and then they've got this, this whole business to business um, uh, aspect as well. So they continue to innovate, continue, you know, whatever the latest payment technology is, they're investing in it and they're, they're looking at it. And in the meantime, they have this network that just can't be replicated. And people seem to be more comfortable with the big players as well. I think we were, a few weeks ago, we were talking about PayPal and how people shopping at a hardware store in Australia still choose PayPal to do it online using their Visa card or so it's still kind of the incumbency and security that comes with being a large player rather than kind of this a startup payments provider. It, 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 exactly. And they've added to that. I mean, Visa's added security measures over time. So, so you, you know, you click not just to use your Visa card, but then you get a screen in some cases, some mer merchants I've gotten one that says, you know, uh, verified by Visa, <laughs> excuse me, that tells you that this is a, se a secure transaction. Yeah. So they, yeah. I had another one linking, I think, I think it links to last week, which is Equinix. Uh, is that a reasonably new addition? Is that, is that the interconnector and kind of data center service provider? It, exactly. Um, Newish, we, we added it almost two years ago to the portfolio. Uh, yeah. um, you know, again, a data center business benefiting from the growth of cloud, benefiting from the amount of media that we consume uh, online, the, you know, this call that's uh, got to go through networks, uh, benefiting from their scale, their ability to, uh, to build larger and larger centers and, and um, build what are called communities of interest where you're located near, uh, near someone else that's, that's uh, pertinent and, and relevant and, and essential in the data chain. So, as, as data is moving, it can move within a data center and, and then out um, where everything relies on, on um, reliability and, uh, and speed. Are they competing with Amazon and Microsoft or are they, they custom or are they Amazon and Microsoft customers of Equinix? They compete to a small extent, but they're more customers. So, so yeah. Amazon would be a customer and would be using an Equinix data center uh, for some of Amazon Web Services. So this is, yeah, so whilst, yeah, like your portfolio would look similar in terms of an IT exposure, but you're not just getting a smaller competitor with a major player, you're getting different parts of the supply chain in a, in a growing theme. It, it, exactly. And so you're not just, in the case of Amazon, you're not just getting a, a piece of Amazon, you're getting kind of one of the main growth drivers for Amazon in a different business. And, and, and one that's, historically largely been focused on the US, but increasingly they're finding opportunities to expand internationally and buy you know, weaker underperforming data centers and turn them around. And have you got a, oh, Jamie's got a question. Yeah. Um, maybe a Chinese stock like um, Tal Education. I think that's um, a, a provider of education services in China, is that right? Yep, yep. So Tal is our, our sole holding at this point in China. Um, we've owned it for, we've owned Tal for six years now. Um, and they're one of the, the two leading providers of after-school tutoring in China. Um, okay. What attracted us to the stock initially, we had owned um, a company called Pearson based in the UK that was an educational, more publishing company than anything else. Um, and for a variety of reasons had sold it, but we liked the education sector and we knew that in a lot of, in many parts of the world, a lot of big investments were being made in education. Um, China is an area where uh, they have an extremely competitive educational system and, and it truly is, you know, kind of like they talk about here in New York City, the nursery school that your child gets into will determine whether they go to Harvard or not. Uh, so it's one, you know, it's a system where, where parents will invest in their child's education. Um, you tend to go, again, brand name is important. So you tend to go to a major player uh, 
you know, who, who is out there promoting that they've been behind kids who win comp academic competitions. Um, so it's an established name. Very fragmented industry, however, when you get outside the major cities, so a lot of room to expand. Um, they've yep. done a great job over the last couple of years, which was really fortuitous, uh, in investing not only in brick and mortar physical tutoring centers, but in building up an online tutoring capability. Um, and that came in clearly handy at the beginning of this year when China was under lockdown. Um, and kids couldn't go into physical tutoring centers, uh, but they could move people online and offer online tutoring. And, and if you're stuck at home with your kid not in school or trying to learn virtually, um, you know, what better thing to do than to, than to get them tutoring. So they've seen some great growth this year. I mean, it's one of the things that we've been talking about is the innovation or disruption in the educational sector has still been quite minimal. We, uh, our, I've got three children, eight, 10 and 12, and they were all homeschooled for that six month period. And, you know, uh, two of them thrived in this environment of self-paced learning. Um, and then you kind of think, well, and then it all goes back, right? So as workers, we haven't caught back and we've still stayed here, but they're all back to the old books and the old classrooms and one pace learning. And, you know, you think there's an opportunity there. Um, that you know education could really change where ai helps the children that you know my son was weak in geometry um but obviously we had to pay for a sec second tutor to get him up to spate but you know this if there was an ai system that allowed well Oliver Nemesis is weak in geometry so every every month or every you know quarter they come back and, and retrain him in that space it, it's kind of when you go back to the school, they go, oh, well, we'll get it next year. You know, next year we do geometry for, you know, for, for a month and a half. And you go, well, it, it's interesting that education hasn't progressed. It must be a huge opportunity, I think. And, and more so, I, I want to go and live in the, at the beach and don't want to send my kids to school every day. So hopefully <laughs> there's real innovation in education. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of room. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's tends to be uneven based on the kid and, and their own development. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly uneven in terms of, I mean, globally, but, but even within Australia, within the States, um, uneven uh, from city to city or town to town or state to state. Mm -hmm. um, and I know it's, I mean, it's been a, a big issue and a big challenge, but I agree with you. I think there's more room for, uh, for techno technologically innovative approaches. I mean, one of the things that Tall does, that, and it's one of the reasons that we bought Tall as opposed to their main competitor um, initially, that we really liked is not really technology, but it's about this kind of uniformity of, of opportunity for kids, uh, is they develop a kind of a central curriculum, and then that's employed by, in, in, when you're in a physical location, that curriculum is employed by each of the teachers. Um, as opposed to their competitor that was more based on kind of hiring star teachers, which is great if you're in one center, but it's not leverageable. You can't leverage the work that that teacher is doing in, in another physical center. Um, and so they centrally develop the, the curriculum in order to maintain high quality standards. Like I say, not a real tech, technological edge that's really coming with this, with this um, online tutoring but it gets to the kind of consistency of quality that I think is also an issue. And should we finish on a bit of an outlook statement? <laughs> if, if we've got one, I want to keep going. Oh, we're over an hour now, so I, wasn't, I didn't want to. Yeah, okay. Pretty late. What time is it in New York, Don? It is just six o'clock. Who needs to go home soon? Yeah, yeah okay, okay. Go outlook. No. Um, so what are we kind of looking at? I, you know, I think a couple of broad statements. I think in general, our kind of working view, and maybe it gets to why I, I gave Zoom as a short upfront. Our, our, our view is that as you look out over the next two years or so, that the world kind of comes back to looking what it looked like in 2019. Um, you know, exception to that would probably be the travel industry where, where it will take a little bit longer uh, for people to be vaccinated. But we do, you know, clearly believe that and, and 
we're saying this even before the last month where, where vaccines uh, turn in some promising information, but, but believe that vaccines would roll out uh, and be available. Do believe that the rollout for that is going to be uh, a, a challenge. I mean, Pfizer's vaccine has to be kept at minus 70 Celsius. So, um, Not good so a bit of a challenge. Know. Yes. Uh, well, and a challenge for hospitals, a challenge for, for where it gets dispensed, a challenge in terms of tracking. If it requires two shots or jabs, you know, how do you keep track of making sure that, that patients come in and get the second one uh, within, within the required time frame? How do you verify that? And how do you distribute globally, uh, you know, not just to rich countries, but to, to poor ones as well? I think you know, it remains to be seen. So. We've been kind of thinking, especially with the news last month, that, that maybe the second half of next year begins to get, you know, things begin to normalize, mm. uh, but it takes a couple of years. But we've also haven't, you know, we haven't made changes in the portfolio or meaningful changes. We certainly didn't sell anything based on COVID and concern about the, the outlook for the company over a, you know, over a longer term period. Um, so broadly speaking, you know, I think we get back to where we were ultimately in the kind of growth and that it takes a little while. Uh, I, you know, I've been of the view really since this started that, that in terms of the market and what, what the, both the direction of the market and any rotation within the market in terms of what's being favored, uh, that you watch the science treatments for COVID and vaccines, that you watch public health policy, the success of, of bending the curves. Uh, and uh, did you watch government policy, fiscal and monetary support? And I think those, you know, those continue to be the drivers. The science looks pretty good at this point, but again, a logistical challenge. Uh, um, <coughs> excuse me, public health policy seems for the most part to be working, although in most parts of the states, we're seeing rising curves right now. Certainly Europe has had mixed success with the second wave. Uh, and monetary support seems to be in place. It's you know just like coming out of the global financial crisis. It's a question of fiscal support, um, which is here in the states again being debated. Um, so that's kind of a qualified outlook. I think you know the the I, what I really do believe in, as I say, we didn't see any changes or any companies that we needed to sell based on COVID. They, to get back to underlying secular drivers, I think they haven't changed for the companies that we own. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, companies are, uh, because they're strong, because they're leading, because they generate cash flow or have strong balance sheets, you know, they may come out the other side of this even stronger. Um, and so I'm very positive on our, on, our, on our portfolio and the outlook for the, for the companies because I think all the, the drivers are there and haven't changed. I think your portfolio was up 28% compared to four for the index to September or in, in Australia <laughs> anyway. So uh, obviously, doing nothing at uh, work over the last 12 months, although I'm sure you weren't doing nothing. We weren't doing, we weren't doing nothing. And we did find, we did find opportunities to add a couple of stocks or a couple of companies that I think will really benefit, you know, that were sold off in, in um, you know, due to the, the, the coronavirus and, and who will have uh, great opportunities, um, you know, to bounce back. And we've seen it in some of the, the positions as vaccine news has come out that they perform well. It was fascinating in the in the crisis in March and April, and, and to watch your fund, it you know it held up incredibly well. If you your know, textbook finance, you would think your growth manager would you know fall off substantially more than a benchmark return. So you, you know you held really strong there, and it was actually the value managers, and not that we aren't really hold many or any um, that, that struggled in that period of time. So it, it'll be interesting in the next 12 months or the next 18 months as there is um, a potentially a vaccine and life goes back to normal, you know, that, that struggle between value and growth and who wins out. But we, we're definitely a, a believer of what you're doing there, Don. Um, and, you know, on behalf of Drew and I and our firm, we want to say thank you, very much for joining us today and thank you for doing your best managing this uh, pool of capital. Really enjoyed the last hour, could go for another hour. So appreciate your time. Um, I think it's Thanksgiving there on Thursday. Um, so yep. have a good day and uh, appreciate your time. Great, Jamie, Drew, thank you very much. Thank you to, to 
all of you, all of your clients for dialing in. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no thanks, problem. John. Okay, so thanks, Drew. Another good session. Uh, next week, we have uh, Joseph Lay from Platinum Asset Management talking about our tilt to Asia. So really, the last three or four weeks, we've been talking about global stocks. And, uh, you know, Joseph... Um, We'll talk about the Asian growth. Uh, even though Platinum is a value manager, essentially he's been very good at picking you know big growth themes out of out of Asia. So that'll be uh, very much enjoyable. Um, I think it's ten thirty next Wednesday. So again, Don, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Drew. See you guys. My pleasure. Thank you.